We've been looking through these chapters of this book called Ecclesiastes, a book that tells the truth, but sometimes it's kind of in a around-the-world kind of way. He seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth sometimes, and maybe that's the way truth is communicated. You say something, you're misunderstood about it, you come back around and you speak it again and you drive your point home. It seems to be what's happened as we move through these 11 chapters as we finish up next week will be chapter 12. But as we've been moving through, not verse by verse, but paragraph by paragraph, if you will, trying to understand how the man who was the wisest man on the face of the earth, his name was Solomon, son of King David, ruled... Uh, a kingdom of Israel during its glory days, many would say, given the privilege and the responsibility of building the temple, the first temple, being called the wisest man on the face of the earth, having riches untold, having anything and everything that anyone would ever desire to have, the ability to write 31 chapters we call Proverbs that many of you live by those statements, and you should. But then to also be responsible for this book, Ecclesiastes, that seems to turn us upside down so much of the time. Well, friends, we've got to realize that God does just that. He is the God of great reversals, if you think about it. What we deem to be important in our society, God doesn't much of the time. The things that we think are the most valuable, the most beautiful, may be the very opposite in God's mind. That when we get all get to heaven, as the song says, when we all arrive in that place called eternity, it could well be that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He who wants to be greatest in the kingdom of God must first be the servant of all. It's then that those things will truly be seen in the light of, of God himself. Well, we've made it to this 11th chapter this morning. And once again, it's only 10 verses long, but we don't have that much time. I simply want to point out just a couple of items of truth. Once again, it's spoken in a way that sometimes we have to kind of break it down. We have to do a little bit of guessing, do a little bit of interpretation. There's nothing wrong with that. But to take basically what Solomon says at face value and to apply those words to our lives. He starts out there in the first verse of Ecclesiastes 11, and he says this. He says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Cast your bread on the waters. For many centuries, interpreters of the Bible just took that literally, that he was saying that you throw seed out on the waters. But we know that in reality, that doesn't work. You don't cast seed on running water. You'll lose it. You 
sow seed. But it seems to me that what Solomon is using here is a, is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. To cast your bread upon the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days, is another way of saying, look beyond what can be seen and do the good works that God has called you to do. If you're going to invest, invest knowing that many times how you invest, you may not see the return on it immediately. It may be something that is far down the road, but don't worry about it. Look beyond what can be seen and do what is right, knowing that someday out there in the future, it will come back to you. Many people thought that the real background of this was going to be corn traders who would set sail to take their harvest, to take corn to another part of the world. And once that shipped pushed off, you didn't know whether it would return or not, but you were faithful. You did the right thing. And certainly we can take those words and say, Solomon has given us good, sound, godly advice in this instance, that many times our need to be generous may be a need also to be sacrificial, to know that we may not see the return on what we give. We don't give and we don't do good things in hopes or tying strings to them or giving loans out expecting to be repaid. That's not how God's welfare, that's not how his system of living works in our day and time. So we look beyond what is seen and we're generous in all things that we do. It's in that Second verse where he doesn't use a metaphor anymore. There's no figure of speech. He just says it straight out. He says, you want it literally? Then take what you have and divide it out. You never know when you may need help, he is saying. You may never know when taking what you have, if you give it to those in need and you spread it out and you're generous in what God has given to you, then in your time of need, it will be the opportunity for those to bless you as well. It's a principle all the way through scripture, dealing with money, dealing with tithes and offerings, dealing with one's resources. But if you take Solomon's words and you kind of say, does this bear truth? Does this work its way into other portions of scripture? Bingo, it does. Our friend Paul, the apostle, who is responsible for 13 of the 27 books we find in the New Testament. What's Paul known for? He's known for, a, he's known for a radical change of life when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, you remember. He did a, an about face. His whole life was bent on destroying Christians and persecuting those who were breaking away from Judaism and claiming that this man Jesus was the savior of the world. And all of a sudden he does a complete turnaround and he becomes the great ambassador, a fiery preacher, a man who, who went to great lengths to what? To tell the story of the gospel. Paul's the one who said, my mission is to go after Gentiles, is to go after that portion of the world that needs to hear the gospel. That's what Paul's known for, but not all. He's also known for a project, a project, and it involved money. 
he was over here in his missionary journeys trying to figure out how to bridge a gap between Gentile and Jew. For the Jews back in Israel still had this wall of separation, still quite didn't understand what it meant to be God's channel to the world of good news. But Israel in that first century had experienced a great famine. There was a food shortage. There were people who were desperate. And Paul saw a way for the Gentile congregations that he had founded to bridge that gap by taking up a collection, literally, taking up an offering. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians. He mentions it in 2 Corinthians. Spends two chapters in 2 Corinthians talking about this gift of money that the churches are collecting. And Paul says, I'm going to bear it. I'm going to take ambassadors and other volunteers, other lay people within the Gentile churches. And we're going to take this gift, this love offering back to Israel. And we're going to, we're going to meet some needs there. The only problem was if Paul, if Paul went back to Israel... He was going to face hard times. He was going to face trouble. He was warned not to go back. He was encouraged. Paul, come on, preach it up. Collect the offering. We'll take care of making sure that everything's accounted for. And then you appoint some people, some representatives, and we'll take that gift to Israel. You don't need to go because there's no telling what will happen once you get there. Paul refused. He said, no, I'm going to see it through. It's a project that I believe in. And Paul went back to Israel. And you remember, it wasn't a week into his visit after he had crossed into the border that he got into trouble. He didn't do anything wrong. Didn't matter. Jewish authorities had it in for him. And I don't know if you remember, but if you look through the re- those remaining chapters in the book of Acts, Paul's entire life, his history was changed because he crossed that border going into Israel to deliver that gift of money as a symbol of building a bridge between people groups. He was thrown into prison in Caesarea by the sea, spent two years at least there, and finally appealed his case to Rome and was taken by ship to Rome where he was thrown in prison once again. And you sit here and you go, he could have done it a different way. Sure, he could have, but it would have been the wrong way. Because you see, my friends, when you get a hold of a project that grabs you by the heart as well as the mind, it means everything. Solomon here says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. Be generous. Don't worry about whether you're going to get repaid. Don't worry about whether you're going to get stars in your crown. God will take care of you. And when you do that, God's going to give you some initiatives in life. He's going to give you some projects of your own that are going to take you, that are going to captivate you. They're going to make all the difference in the world to you. Have you ever had a a project like that? I mean, Susan spoke today about Operation Christmas Child, a worthy project. Our church attempts as best we can to reach out beyond our, our property, our facility, to reach a community, to reach a city, to reach a state, to reach a world. We've got projects going on in several places across the globe. One of those is in Guatemala. 
We got some <clears throat> challenges there to provide clean water for people who need it, need that basic right, that basic, they just, they're thirsty. They need water just like any of us do. And they don't have clean water. Well, we can help provide that. That's a project. It's a project that with people going down there, with people giving generously, it can make the difference in an entire village called Pueblo Modelo. It already has. See, that's what Solomon is saying. And, and right here, it's okay, I get it, I get it. He's not lapsing into those sentences of despair about vanity of vanities and everything is meaningless. He isn't there. He's, he's winding up these thoughts and he's hit us straight head on with the greatest challenge most of us have as affluent people who live in this part of the world is we're stingy, we're selfish, and we have no basic direction. Now, I'm talking about Christians. He says in verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Okay, now he's starting to kind of take that turn again, isn't he? Solomon, you're doing good. You're giving us some encouragement. And now you're lapsing back into this. This doom and gloom and despair. Is he? Or is he telling us something? Something that can lift us above the perspective that so many of us have. Or we're not seeing clearly. He's talking about the uncertainty of life. That, that much is, is certain. I mean, he sits here, look, look how he puts it. He says, if it rains, it rains. If it floods out everything, it floods out everything. If a tree falls in the forest and it falls this way or that way, what can you do about it? What can I do about it? That's just the nature of life. But then he says in the midst of that, if all you do is watch for the wind or you refuse to sow when you should plant, if you're looking at the clouds because it might wash it away, what do you end up doing? You end up doing nothing. It's called Paralysis by analysis. You know what it is. It's that, it's that refusal to move forward. It's that refusal to move to the side. It's that refusal to move back. It's refusal to do anything. And many times when it comes to decisions of faith, we miss opportunities. Every time Marcy and I have made a big... Uh, transaction, financial transaction, something about it just unnerves me. I'm talking about like we've, we have purchased several homes over the years. The first house we bought 40 something years ago, we went to the uh, title company to close the loan. I wouldn't sign the papers. Why? Marcy, it's 30 years from now we're going to pay this thing off. Look at that interest that we're going to pay. I literally had to get out, go downstairs, walk around. They didn't know if I was going to come back or not. But I did. Because 
then I got the perspective given by some good friends and relatives that I've got to look at it in a different way. I've got to look at it that, yes, it's a lot of money. Yes, it's a big commitment. But you're, you're paying to live somewhere for a certain period of time. And if you end up with a good thing, the value will go up. If you don't, the value will go down. But you're going to be paying to live somewhere anyway. All along, that's what it's going to be. And so that's the way I've had to approach these huge, in my mind, these big decisions that we've made. And it's just automatic. It's just She knows that when we come to the table to do something like that, that that's going to be my default attitude. And it's wrong. It's wrong. Because you miss opportunities when you look at things that way. When you're analyzing everything and you're thinking only about the risk, you miss the opportunities. This church, when we came here, what, 26 years ago? This church had already voted to relocate. Marcy and I were sitting here going, this church has got it together. They can make decisions. They can move forward without a pastor. And if we come in, can't blame it on me. You know, it's something we all decided to do. And we did. But there was a lot of negotiations in moving from Old Town down there. There was some timing issues. There was the state highway going to bisect our property, if some of you remember that. Some of you may not. But if we had waited, if we had bided our time, if we had said, oh, we need to wait on this or the interest rate's got to go here or there, you want to be, you want to be frugal, I understand. But at times, if you don't take an opportunity, what happens? You miss. You miss out. Paralysis by analysis. That's what Solomon's saying. Don't miss the opportunity. And it's on the little things as well. You're going to spend how many more months being embittered about that broken relationship? Or can you, can you step out and offer an apology? Can you step out and try to make amends? Or are you going to miss the opportunity? Are you going to wait until the other person takes a step forward before you agree to do anything? Solomon says, hey, can't live that way. He's right. He says, sow your seed, verse 6, in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Now, what in the world does that mean? Solomon's saying, hey... When it's time to get things done, get things done. Don't be lazy about it. When there's daylight, work. When you can't, take a break. But when the opportunities are there, do what you must do. Because you never know what your words and what your actions are going to do. Matter of fact, if you go back through these three paragraphs, we just went over every single one of them. He goes, you do not know. Next section, you do not know the activity of God. In the verse we just read, you do not know whether morning or evening will succeed. You don't know what the weather is going to do. You don't know what the economy is going to do. But you do know this. You do there are some things you need to do. So, folks, we've got to get out of this rut of, of missing out. 
One of the biggest problems is we make this Bible, we make these words say what we want them to say. And we're wrong to do that. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I open the Dallas Morning News every day and I sit here and go, one day I'm going to open the paper and there's not going to be a single crime reported. Hadn't happened yet. One of these days we're going to wake up and they're going to say, this is the day we broke the cycle. What cycle? The last time we had no fatalities on the highways of the state of Texas was November 7, 2000. It's been 19 years. Every day there's been a fatality on a Texas highway. I sit here and go, someday we're going to break that. Well, we haven't yet. And I sit here and what I do, and I go, I have never heard people tell me, Stephen, I love those sermons on giving. Would you do 20 of them in a row next year? (laughs) No one's ever told me that. No one has ever said, Stephen, it's my turn to sit on the front row for the next three months in service. No one's ever told me that. No one's ever said, Stephen, the temperature in the worship center this morning was perfect for everyone. (laughs) I told you, one church I serve, how we took care of that problem, we put a thermostat back there on the back wall that was hooked up to nothing. And people would go in and turn it, or they'd raise it, they'd lower it. And they all felt like they were in control. They felt better. I've never heard anyone honestly tell me that the temperature was just perfect. I've never heard anyone say, I love singing songs that I've never heard before. (laughs) No one's ever said that. And see, we, we all come around here and we say, well, this, 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 and this. Well, we've taken that and we've twisted so many things that the Bible doesn't say, but we say it does. Jesus, hear me. He never said, the first shall be first, the last shall be last, so look out for number one. He didn't. What did he say? He said, the first shall be last. You want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. That's what Jesus said. Jesus never said the ends would justify the means. It's funny how in church we seem to forget that. We will do anything, it seems, to bring the numbers up or to make it look like it's better than it is. Jesus never said the ends justify the means. He said you live in the reality that life is uncertain, but the God who created you is a God of certainty. That's what he said. Jesus never said if we follow him, we will have a life of ease and success and fame and no problems. Jesus never said that. Jesus said basically the very opposite. He said, if you follow me, the son of man, I don't even have a place to put my head on. I don't have a pillow to sleep on. I have to depend upon the generosity of Peter and his mother-in-law. I stay at their house. I bunk up at their house in Capernaum. You talk about telling people that if they'll trust me, I'll give them a life of ease. There'll be no problems, no sickness. They'll always have everything that they want. I'm sorry, but 
This goes in Christian circles and it's wrong. There's a very popular evangelist. His name is Benny Hinn. He lives in this area. Newspaper came out, what, two, three weeks ago, two, three months ago, sometime around there. Said he had given up and let go of the prosperity gospel. Only problem was he did it five years ago. He did it 10 years ago. He did it 15 years ago. And he gave up the prosperity gospel, but he didn't give up any of his wealth or possessions. Now, I'm not throwing rocks at him. Well, yeah, I'm throwing rocks at him. Because he said it. He let it be published. It's what he's known for. The only problem is, Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh, yes, he did. Matthew 5, 42. Yeah, he did say that. You know why? Because if you look at it, the translators of the New American Standard Bible or any modern translation that you're reading from will say, love your neighbor is in all caps because it is a quotation from the Old Testament. Hate your enemy? It's nowhere to be found. In the Old Testament. So why is it stated like that? Because that's how twisted the mindset of the people were in the first century. If you love your neighbor, then automatically it's implied you hate your enemy. And so Jesus had to come back and almost quote it like that was the scripture. But it wasn't. He's saying, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love those who despise you, who persecute you, who hate you. That's what Jesus said. This is what Solomon's trying to tell us. He's just telling us the truth. And it hurts sometimes. It sounds convoluted sometimes. But we need to get our facts straight. And we need to get the sayings of Scripture that we quote so often. We need to get them right. Because the stakes are too high. It speaks to generosity. It speaks to commitment to work. It speaks to putting the future in God's hands because it's in his hands anyway. And knowing that the gift of the present day is a gift of the present day. It belongs to us. Let's live it. Let's rejoice in it. And let's be obedient to God's commands. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here. Hear your word. Make choices. Help us to be faithful. And to make those choices that reflect a commitment and a love for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We wrap up this hour the way we do every time we meet. We close with a song, a song of commitment, a song of invitation. Because we feel that when God speaks, we're given the opportunity to respond. And some of those responses need to be made publicly. Some don't, but some do.
If you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus to save you, if you've never become a follower of the Lord, that's a choice that you make. It's a provision that God has made for the sins of the world. Jesus died upon a cross that I might have eternal life, that you might have eternal life, but it's presented to us as a choice. It's a gift. Will we take it? Will we receive it? Will we accept it? If that's on your heart and on your mind, let us, let's pray for you. Come forward. If there's some confusion there, let's clear it up. If you're here today and you know the Lord just hadn't told anyone, tell us. Profess your faith in Him. There's water up there in that baptistry. It's there for a reason. It's a symbol. Let's talk about what it means and why it's important. And Let's talk about it. Maybe you're looking for a church to call your own. Well, here we are. First Baptist Church, 1251 Valley Ridge, Louisville, Texas, 75077. But there's churches all around us here. That's, that's right. Great churches. But if God's leading you to link arms with us, with this family of faith, how do you do that? You just come forward. You state your intention to unite with us. And that's the beginning. And then if, if you're like me, you got this issue of control, got this issue of paralysis by analysis sometimes. If you're like me and sometimes you twist the words of Jesus and kind of twist them around there to make me look better, make things happier, make things seem more palatable to people. Or if you turn to a book like Ecclesiastes and just kind of give up on it because it just sounds so confusing, then ask God to give you the steps you need to take. Baby steps maybe. Just begin here. Make a choice. Move forward. Whatever that is in your life, God will show you and he'll lead you. So that's our invitation. I ask you to stand. We wait wait here in the front. As God leads, you step out and make those choices.